Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, this week, I'm going to shut up and let the technology do the talking. And this is some pretty cool stuff. So small peptide therapeutics have incredible potential to treat disease. The problem is they're small peptides, and the body readily recognizes them as foreign. Now, Grow Biosciences has new technologies that are truly game changers because they use some super cool molecular biology tricks to incorporate novel amino acids in the proteins and change how they're decorated with carbohydrate moieties to make them invisible to the immune system. It's essentially re-educating the immune system to be tolerant of the novel protein therapy being delivered. These new therapies are being tested against a suite of disorders, but one of them being myasthenia gravis. Uh, one that currently doesn't have a cure, just treatments that can help someone live with the disease. So this is really good stuff. So th this is technology I never thought of before, and I think of molecular biology a lot. So, <laughs> so this is super cool. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Mandel. He's the CEO and co-founder of Grow Biosciences. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mandel. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, this is really cool. I've enjoyed going through the materials and some of the papers associated with this work and have a lot of questions in my head, but I think it's something that the audience will really appreciate as uh, two new ways of, of dealing with certain technologies. And let's just start out with the idea of the development of protein-based therapeutics and Grow Bio taking a rather novel approach to development of these therapeutics. What is exactly the GROW platform, and how does it enable protein-based therapies? Yeah, so the GROW platform is essentially a novel way to make proteins with new building blocks uh, called amino acids. So really for the past three and a half billion years, all of life has used the same 20 amino acid building blocks. So everything that you see around us from bacteria and viruses to trees and elephants are composed of the same 20 building blocks. And each of these amino acid building blocks carries a special chemical property. Um, and so when we're making therapeutics, we'd like to go beyond that limitation of only having these 20 building blocks to work with. So with these organisms that we call genomically recoded organisms or GROWs as our name implies, we have the first organisms that can actually go beyond those 20 standard amino acids and bring in these powerful new chemistries that we can use to make uh, novel therapeutics. Um, to engineer this uh, GROW platform, um, it's, it's actually quite a bit of work. So we had to radically change the organism's genetic code. Um, what that means is we took one of the codons from the genetic code, um, which is any of the three consecutive nucleotides uh, in the DNA alphabet. And we systematically changed it to what we call a synonymous codon. That is to say, we're changing the codon to another sequence that has the same meaning. But now that there are no instances of that codon in the genome, we can delete everything in the cell that would recognize or bind to that codon. So effectively what we've done is reassign that codon 
to now specify the incorporation of a new amino acid, what we call a non-standard amino acid. So these are really the first organisms that can go beyond the standard 20 amino acid building blocks and build completely novel proteins that nature could never consider before. Okay, I think I got this. So this is all done in E. coli, right? That's right. So the first organism that we recoded is E. coli. Um, that's largely because it's a widely used and relatively easy to use production platform. Um, it also happens to have one of the smaller genomes of all of the production organisms that are out there. Um, and so that made the task of performing this systematic recoding a little bit less uh, daunting. Um, but uh, efforts are underway to recode other organisms, uh, such as yeast and mammalian cells as well. And when you say a little less daunting, how many different edits did you have to make in those stop codons of E. coli to do this across an entire genome? So there are hundreds of changes that had to be made for this first organism, um, but we're now finishing uh, another organism, uh, which is going to have multiple codons uh, reassigned. That is to say now we can put in multiple different new chemistries simultaneously, and that took tens of thousands of changes to the genome. So you can start to imagine how difficult uh, the early work was on these projects. Okay, so this is coming together for me. So now you free up this one codon that used to be uh, assigned as a stop codon that now is available as a codon in the coding region of a transcript that now can uh, recruit a tRNA with a novel amino acid. But where does that tRNA come from uh, and where is that novel amino acid come from that is attached to it? Yeah, great question. So for every new amino acid that we want to add to the alphabet, we actually engineer a new tRNA and an enzyme called a synthetase that attaches that amino acid to the tRNA. Um, so this is the process that's oftentimes taken years. So part of what we've built Acrobio is a computational and high throughput screening infrastructure, which we call our high throughput biofoundry to bring roughly order of magnitude acceleration to that process. So what we do is all of the different templates that make and bring them into a design workflow that allows us to modify them to specifically react to this new amino acid. And through that process, we can now relatively rapidly uh, engineer what we call this translational machinery. That's the tRNA and the synthetase for each new amino acid. Okay, now this is all starting to make even more sense because you have to have the tRNA attached to that amino acid. But what kind of amino acids are we talking about here? I mean, I know there's a lot of naturally occurring ones that are not in the 20 that are tr used translationally. So are, are these just from that set like taurine and some of those, or are, there, are they really kind of novel amino acids with unusual properties? Yeah, it's both. So we can take rarely used amino acids that are very difficult to encode genetically and now make them completely engineerable. So there could be an amino acid which has to be installed uh, and then modified through an enzymatic process, which is very slow and difficult to scale. We can now make that as trivial as popping that codon into the protein's coding, uh, protein's coding, excuse me, protein coding sequence. Um, but we can also put in totally novel amino acids uh, and we've done that as well. So different amino acids can confer different capabilities to proteins that can range from uh, improving their stability, uh, allowing them to better penetrate inside cells, and even modulating the immune system. 
Um, and those are all totally novel capabilities, which we can introduce with this expanded amino acid alphabet. I see. Now this is really, really coming together. <laughs> it gets better. We're sharpening this thing every step here. So now you can uh, insert a, a, a your gene of interest that you want to uh, generate this peptide or this protein and also recode that protein so that it has these uh, amino acids that maybe confer better ability to uh, be more stable or maybe you know evade ubiquitination or whatever happens in its therapeutic context. And so you're able to uh, generate these in E. coli and now have a host of peptide-based therapeutics that have potential roles in, uh, well, in, in treating some sort of disease. You nailed it. So now that codon, which you removed from the genome, uh, only appears in the protein where you place it. So for example, if you're a drug developer, all you have to do is put a, a plasmid, for example, encoding that gene into the grow. Uh, and then place that codon anywhere in that protein coding sequence where you want that non-standard amino acid to appear. And so there's two really important uh, features of the GROW that make this uh, what we call scalable. Um, one is your tRNA uh, that has the NSA on it will only go to the positions in your protein sequence where you've placed that codon. It will not travel to other places in the genome uh, and have what we call off-target incorporation which oftentimes makes the production cell sick. You know, you can imagine a position where you're supposed to stop translation and now you stick in this novel amino acid. That's not very good for the fitness of the cell. Um, so that doesn't happen in our organism. It only goes to places where you place the codon. The second really important feature is in a wild type organism, every codon has associated translational here. So for example, if you take that recoded stop codon you mentioned earlier, um, there's a protein called release factor one that's trying to stop translation at that position. Well, we don't have any of those codons in the genome anymore. So now we can delete that release factor and there's no competition in the cell uh, for your codon in your protein sequence. So now whenever you put that codon in your therapeutic protein, uh, the tRNA will only associate at that position and the tRNA doesn't have to compete with anything else in the, to associate at that position. And this is a big part of why this is really the only scalable platform for making these NSAA bearing proteins. Yeah, this is really good. So, so can you explain to me some of the advantages and disadvantages of using peptide-based therapies? Sure, yeah. So most drugs are typically gonna be either small molecules. You know, these are things like uh, ibuprofen and some of the statins, for example, that are made through chemical processes typically or sometimes extracted from processes. Um, protein therapies, which we're talking about today, uh, and uh, gene therapies are really starting to, to push their way onto the scene. Um, now, their small molecules have a whole suite of advantages and disadvantages relative to protein therapeutics. So some of the advantages uh, of proteins over small molecules is that proteins uh, can assume many, many different shapes, and you can target them to almost anything. Uh, Antibodies, for example, are proteins. And as you may know, antibodies can be trained to recognize any uh, chemical shape. Um, and so that's a really big advantage of protein therapeutics. You can target pretty much any receptor or other protein in the body. Um, they're also much bigger than small molecules, as the name implies, and so they tend to have a longer half-life. So that can mean less frequent dosing, for example. Um, and they're also made using living cells. Uh, like E. coli or yeast, or sometimes even uh, human or mammalian cells. And one advantage of that 
factor is because they're genetically encoded, we can actually use evolution to drive the, uh, to drive better efficacy uh, and activity uh, of protein therapeutics. So these are some of the things that make them really cool. Now, um, of course, that because we're making these uh, proteins in living cells, they have to be purified from the cells and that can make them more expensive uh, than some small molecules. Um, and the fact that they're bigger also means it can be tougher for them to get inside of cells uh, to target certain diseases. And so there are some diseases that involve intracellular targets that at present are better suited for small molecules, but the field is making significant progress in developing cell penetrating peptides and proteins as well. Um, and finally, proteins typically won't survive passage through the stomach and the intestine. Um, so they have to be administered typically by injection or administered through IV. Um, and so for that reason, uh, many protein therapeutics are used for more serious diseases. And then as I mentioned, gene therapies, uh, this is where uh, you typically, you're typically gonna package uh, a copy of a gene, a corrective gene into a, a virus is usually the, the common vector and deliver that to the patient with the intent of correcting a mutation in the patient's genome that's causing a disease. Um, and so when it's done right, uh, the, co the corrected copy of the DNA in the virus can overwrite the mutation in the patient's genome. And there's even a possibility of a one dose cure for some diseases. And these are typically used for some of the most devastating diseases like uh, spinal muscular atrophy or, or Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. But the problem is uh, really twofold. One is uh, you may have off-target off uh, activity uh, of, that, of that virus. And so if you edit the wrong spot, uh, you can imagine that being devastating to a patient. The other uh, is that, you know, you may not be surprised to hear that humans have evolved for a very long time to avoid viruses. And so we typically have a powerful immune response to that viral delivery vector. That means that first off, many people already have antibodies against the virus that we're trying to use to deliver the therapy, which means therapy won't be effective. Um, and secondly, once your body's seen that virus, uh, you can pretty much not no longer deliver it. It's very difficult to redose because if you didn't have antibodies against the virus before, well, now you probably do. Um, and we are in fact, uh, as I mentioned, as we're developing these chemistries that allow us to modulate the immune system, actually working on that problem to be able to reprogram the immune system to allow uh, delivery of gene therapies, among other things. Uh, this, is, this is all really good stuff. I mean, people don't realize, as you mentioned, antibodies are proteins. And then insulin is a great example of a small molecule therapeutic too for, diabe for diabetics. So it's, it's, it's something that's very common, much more common than we think sometimes. And um, GrowBio's platform really is one layer deeper because you have this pro-gly concept, which uses the non-standard amino acid library, but adding glycans to change how the immune system responds to that protein. And so what are glycans and how do they interact with the immune system? Yeah, so glycans are the sugar molecules that decorate most of the cells and proteins in your body. So uh, you and I uh, share the same glycan language, um, which is different than the language used by cows, which is different than the language used by uh, corn, uh, which is different than the language used by bacteria. And so, for example, this is one of the key ways that your body distinguishes self from non-self. Um, if you have a, a pathogenic bacteria in your body, um, it's going to recognize that foreign glycan se sequence. Um, in fact, some uh, pathogenic bacteria have gotten so clever, they've learned how to pluck glycans off of your cells and put them on them to avoid immune surveillance. 
um, as an example of how powerful this language is as far as discriminating self uh, from non-self. Um, and so uh, the ability to engineer glycosylation uh, on specific proteins has really evaded protein engineers for a long time. And so with Proglide, we're actually hoping to enable this for the first time, this ability to define that glycan signature on the surface of any protein and therein control how the immune system will respond to it. Okay, so are these just amino acids which you know, when you assemble the protein are already somehow linked to that glycan or, or that, that come kind of uh, uh, pre-adorned uh, with these yes. uh, molecules. Yeah, so, that, so that's how that works. All right, that's pretty cool. So how does Grow Bios technology create these custom glycosylated proteins? Yeah, so, so ProGly is one of, of several families of chemistries that we've enabled in the platform. So I mentioned, you know, there are chemistries for improving stability. Uh, there are chemistries for enabling uh, attachment uh, uh, of other things. And this is another family of chemistries uh, which has glycans on it. And so you can really think of these as like any other amino acid building block in the alphabet. And that's part of what makes it so powerful. Um, wherever you place that target codon in your protein coding sequence, the organism will install this glycosylated amino acid. And you can choose from a variety of effects on the immune system based on which glycan you use. So some of these glycans can cause a protein to be recognized as self. And so, for example, we could take an autoantigen and try to re-educate uh, the, uh, the patient's immune system to recognize it as a self-protein to reverse an autoimmune disease. Um, you could also imagine taking a uh, protein which is on a cancer cell um, and uh, training the immune system to attack that by using a different light that would typically be used as a non-self signal, like from bacteria. Um, so we can really go either way. Um, right now, the company is very focused on that first uh, set of applications, tolerance, because it's actually one of the more difficult problems facing medicine. How do you train the immune system to recognize an arbitrary protein is safe, that it's a self-protein? Um, and this is, in our minds, really uh, the first way that's, uh, I think, quite convincing to do it for any protein in a facile way. Yeah, that's the real breakthrough solution, it sounds like. But one of the barriers that I can imagine is that glycosylation is readily reversible. There's enzymes that put them on, enzymes that take them off. And are these special proteins that you're creating resistant to those enzymes that remove glycosylation signals? Or uh, just to make sure that these things have a longer half-life or are, are not uh, evading the mechanisms of the cell? It's a great question. Um, and so, in fact, uh, once a glycosylated protein is taken up by an immune cell, um, those enzymes you mentioned are actually inside the immune cell and they remove the glycans. And the idea there is they want to present the underlying protein sequence to other immune cells to educate them about that antigen. Um, and so in our case, uh, we actually want those glycans to get removed. So for example, if we're trying to tolerize a patient to a protein that's causing an autoimmune disease, we want to tolerize them to the underlying sequence that's driving that disease. And so we can take that exact same sequence, but now we can use a glycosylated version of it. And what that does is when the glycosylated protein encounters that immune surveillance cell, that cell recognizes those glycans as cell. It then removes the glycans and presents the antigen to other cells to say, hey, this is a self protein, stand down. And that's really the power of the approach. You can use that for any protein sequence 
and you can educate the immune system to recognize that sequence as cell. Yeah, so this would have tremendous application inside uh, many autoimmune diseases, it sounds. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that's where we'll go next. So we're speaking with Dr. Dan Mendel. He's the CEO and co-founder of Grow Biosciences, and this is Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Dan Mendel. He's the CEO and co-founder of Grow Bio. And we're talking about innovative strategies to change E. coli and other organisms, making them genomically recoded organisms. Organisms that can create new flavors of proteins, which can be helpful in therapeutics, and then decorate those proteins with mechanisms that help them re-educate the immune system. And where this gets exciting is when we start to talk about application, because there's so many different uh, diseases, especially autoimmune diseases, that really uh, defy most, or which, which defy many of the modern therapeutics, that many of these are maintenance-type uh, drugs that don't cure the problem. They just allow someone to live with it a little bit longer and more comfortably. And so let's talk about really the number one application in your pipeline is with myasthenia gravis. And, and so what is myasthenia gravis? How many people are affected? What kind of problem is it? Myasthenia gravis or MG is a serious autoimmune disease that causes progressive muscle weakness in patients. It often starts with ocular uh, muscle weakness, so drooping of the eyes, uh, and then it often progresses to more debil debilitating weakness, um, including uh, difficulty breathing sometimes. Uh, so it's a very serious disease. Um, hundreds of thousands of people around the globe have this disease. And in the U.S. alone, uh, thousands of patients are what we call refractory, meaning that they aren't responding to any of the first-line therapies. And so uh, to your point, Kevin, you know, like many autoimmune diseases, these refractory MD patients are treated with harsh therapies that don't work very well. So these are broadly immunosuppressive therapies that are going to knock down the entire immune system. Um, and that's going to impair the patient's ability to fight uh, infections. It's going to increase your risk for cancer and, and, and possibly cause metabolic dysfunction. Um, and also, as you mentioned, they're, they're, they're simply symptom uh, management. They don't actually cure the disease, uh, or even in most cases, cause a very substantial improvement to symptoms. And so what is the actual therapeutic target in the case of MG? How, how does that work? So, so one of the key reasons why we think we can really help here is that the autoantigen that drives MG is very well characterized. Uh, it's a muscle uh, uh, protein called the acetylcholine receptor. Um, and um, 85% of MG patients are sick because they have an immune response to that one protein. So if we can make a pro-gly version of that protein and administer it to the patient to, as you put it, re-educate the immune system to recognize that autoantigen as a self-protein, we can in fact cure the disease for 85% of these patients. 
and we can do it without having to repress the rest of the immune system. This is what we call antigen-specific polarization. And there are many diseases that could potentially be cured by an approach like this. Uh, myasthenia gravis is one that happens to be quite well suited. That's really good stuff. And, and maybe I have to take a little bit of a step back because the two things that I'm not good at are immune systems and brains. And so when we talk about the idea of re-education, where the, it seems like the immune system has already made a decision though to identify this target as uh, foreign or non-self and, uh, and initial, initialize this autoimmune response. So how does it override that first wave of the body's natural response against a self protein? That's a great question. And it's all about restoring a balance or homeostasis in the immune cells of the patient. So in an autoimmune disease patient, oftentimes you have uh, these uh, certain what are called T cells, stimulatory T cells that are causing inflammation. Uh, those T cells also activate other cells called B cells, which produce antibodies. So in the case of myasthenia gravis, there are overactive T cells and B cells that are pumping out antibodies against that muscle uh, uh, receptor. And that's what is ultimately driving the muscle weakness. It's those antibodies binding to that receptor. Um, and so the idea here is to deactivate or turn off those overactive stimulatory T cells and B cells. So the way that ProGlide works, we talked about how uh, the glycosylated antigen, again, remember, this is the same protein that causes the disease, but it just has these ProGlide glycans on it. Um, when that version of it now enters into an immune cell and the immune cell has seen that self-signature through those lycans, it's going to present that, that an antigen sequence to the uh, immune cell repertoire um, as a cell protein. So what happens now is when new immune cells are made, they're educated to understand that that is a cell protein and they differentiate into special T cells called T regulatory cells or T regs. And Tregs are very special, very powerful cells, which actually will localize to the site of inflammation uh, and deactivate and in, in terms of causing energy or even clonal deletion of those overactive stimulatory T cells and ultimately suppressing the activity of the B cells that make the antibody. So we're really turning off the, the faucet, as it were, uh, that's driving the stimulatory immune response against that antigen. And we're doing it by putting in powerful uh, antigen-specific immunosuppressive cells that are actually the result of administering the pro-live version of the antigen. All right, this makes perfect sense now because the uh, immune cells, your, T's and, your T and B cells have some sort of turnover. So if you can re-educate the foundation of the, of, the, of the B cells, now all of a sudden you can uh, build a, as you say, a repertoire of re-educated uh, immune cells. Exactly right. It's all about restoring uh, equilibrium. All right. Well, this is really cool. So what have the results been so far in your models? Because I believe you have a MG model um, uh, rodent that you can use. And uh, what, are, what are we learning about how well this works? Yeah. So uh, there, there is a, a rat model of myasthenia gravis, uh, and it, it does happen to be uh, one of the more translatable uh, animal models. You know, no animal model is perfect, but this happens to be one that pretty faithfully recapitulates the human disease and wherein uh, treatments that work uh, in, in human have worked in this rat model. And so uh, it worked the same way. You induce the disease with the same antigen that drives human disease, that acetylcholine receptor. 
And then over time, the animals develop uh, progressive muscle weakness. And so what we did uh, was to uh, go into this disease model, uh, split up the animals and treat some uh, with a, a vehicle, just with a, 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 a pure solution without the therapeutic, and then uh, others with the ProGly therapeutic. And what we found was that when we treated the animals with ProGly, we could drive a profound improvement in disease progression in these animals. And then furthermore, when we look at the immune cells in these animals, we saw the mechanism that we hoped to see, which was a multifold induction of those Treg cells. So we're able to put the antigen into the animals in this glycosylated form, drive the induction of those Treg cells. Those Treg cells are then quelling the immune response to the uh, autoantigen. And you're seeing this, uh, uh, this really great increase in the disease progression as muscle, uh, excuse me, as measured by uh, muscle strength in these animals. Well, it's, it's all very exciting. Where does it sit in terms of the pipeline, in terms of uh, clinical testing, things like that? Yeah, so now that we have uh, compelling animal data, you know, the next steps are to, to move towards an e filing. Um, and, you know, you hope to be uh, doing that next year and then getting into the clinic uh, the year after that. Yeah, these things can never go fast enough. It, it's and and it's something that we talk about all the time here on the podcast is how uh, it how hearing these kinds of positive results in therapies that are novel that look really good uh, give hope to someone who's suffering from this disease. But the uh, the process can never go quickly enough. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the concept of enzyme replacement and some of the work that's going on at Grow Bio in that area. So. Why is that relevant to human disease? Yeah, so uh, oftentimes when a patient has a disease, um, it can be the result of a deceptive gene in their body uh, that results in that gene's products uh, of an enzyme uh, being deficient. Um, and there are many examples of, of these diseases. And so oftentimes the simplest way to cure that disease is to provide them with that enzyme. Uh, you can simply uh, infuse it into the patient. Uh, and oftentimes it's very effective. Uh, the patient now has the right level of that enzyme and they can, they can go about their lives. The problem is that oftentimes the sources uh, of those enzymes uh, are foreign. And as a result of that, um, you develop an immune reaction to it. So we just talked about how ProGly can polarize patients to proteins from within themselves, right? Autoantigens. But we can just as easily tolerate patients to proteins from other sources, like enzymes that are from other species. And so uh, what we've done is we've taken an enzyme replacement therapy, which is very effective uh, in refractory patients. But when you treat patients, it almost always generates a powerful inflammatory response in the form of antibodies that bind that enzyme and stop it from working. So we want to create a version of this enzyme uh, which can be just as active, but which has a tolerization effect on the body. That is to say, it will not generate these neutralizing antibodies. Um, so this is where our computational protein design uh, our workflows have really come in handy again, um, because now what we can do is look at the surface of the enzyme uh, in a computer, um, look at billions of possible places we can put these different, uh, these different molecules, these glycans, uh, run that through a high throughput screening platform that we've built and ultimately identify variants that are highly tolerogenic, but also maintain all the activity of the wild type protein, right? So here uh, is an example of a protein where there's a marketed product. Um, it becomes ineffective in most patients very rapidly. 
And now we've been able to engineer a variant, but a variant of it, uh, which has uh, many of these tolerogenic glycans and which we can show has 100% of the activity of the wild type enzyme in human blood serum, which is where this, uh, this therapeutic has to function. Well, you mentioned the inflammation response coming from the addition of a therapeutic protein that isn't tolerated well that you now will make tolerated. But what's a couple examples or maybe an example of a protein that's delivered therapeutically that maybe isn't uh, received so well by the body? Yeah, there are many. So, um, for example, uh, you can look at the enzymes that are used for phenylketonuria, um, Gaucher's disease, gout, um, and even some of the blood factors uh, that are used for treating hemophilia. Um, all of these, you have uh, observations of neutralizing antibodies that over time can render these, these therapies highly ineffective. You also mentioned earlier how these uh, technologies can be used to enhance the uh, application of uh, gene therapy, because most of these are delivered or many of them are delivered by viruses that the body begins to develop an immune response towards, really really overriding the efficacy of the therapy itself. And can you give us more ideas about how this technology can work in that context? Absolutely. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, these immune responses to the gene therapy delivery vectors is, is really the primary impediment to expanding the access of gene therapy to more patients. So just as we can tolerize patients to autoantigens and enzymes, we can also tolerize them to the proteins that comprise those gene therapy uh, delivery vectors. So the little twist here on what I described earlier, and, and I'll mention we have a couple different approaches uh, in the works, but one of the approaches that we, we pursue is to take those key immunogenic proteins from the virus um, express them in our platform uh, with those, uh, those pro-gly amino acids, and then basically create an empty viral delivery capsid, which is used prior to the gene therapy treatment to educate the immune system to receive that treatment and not react to it. So it's not itself a gene therapy. It's almost like a tolerogenic vaccine that you give prior to treatment. And this is actually uh, well in line with the way that you might treat a patient now but it's done by hitting them with a corticosteroid or another immunosuppressive. Um, here again, we're trying to create an antigen-specific tolerization. So you're only going to turn down the immune response to this one protein, leaving the rest of the immune system intact. And in principle, that can be done both to eliminate the pre-existing antibodies that make some patients ineligible for treatment, as well as to uh, eliminate or prevent the emergence of antibodies subsequent to treatment to enable redosing. And as I mentioned earlier, it's very hard to redose team therapies right now. This is a way that for the first time, we could potentially give multiple doses of these life-saving therapies and perhaps at a safer and lower dose as well. Yeah, this is one of the major barriers that really keeps gene therapy, well, some gene therapies from being effective. And so what you're doing essentially is a pre-treatment that says, hey, body, uh, pretty soon you're going to be seeing this and and kind of, uh, you know, educating or re-educating the immune system to not respond to that particular new antigen. That's exactly right. Oh, wow. This, this is really cool stuff. So when you look at the current um, pipeline of, of different products that you're talking about at GrowBio, uh, we, we talked about the uh, potential therapy for myasthenia gravis. Where's everything else? Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping to bring our pipeline into clinical trials uh, in 2025. Um, and as you said, it takes time to get through the clinic, but if you were to tack on sort of the typical five-ish year development plan, 
um, that's where we'd be looking at to bring these to market. This is all super exciting stuff. And uh, if people want to learn more about the technology or more about Grow Bio, are there some resources you can point them to online? Yeah, you can go to uh, growbio.com. That's G-R-O-B-I-O.com. And you can learn more about our Grow platform, uh, the ProGly approach. We also have another uh, set of chemistries called Doralogic uh, that I alluded to earlier that can make proteins more stable uh, to improve half-life and dosing. Um, and we also have a lot of information there on, on ideas around future chemistries um, and basically how the company functions uh, and works. Um, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. So feel free to hit us up on social media. Um, we try to put out material pretty regularly and you can hear what we're up to. No, very good. And where do they find you on Twitter? Uh, we're GRO underscore BIO, both for Twitter uh, and for Instagram. And then we're also on LinkedIn. Ah, very good. That's very, yeah. yeah, that's very helpful. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Dan Mandel, really appreciate your time today on this. This has been, for me, one of the most technology-dense versions of the podcast I've done in a very long time. And I'm going to have to really go back and scratch my head on this because it just is, um, it's amazing technology with really more applications that we probably haven't even thought of yet. So thank you very much for your time today. Uh, terrific speaking with you, Kevin. I'm looking forward to receiving my, my densest technology trophy uh, from you this year. Uh, but these are fantastic questions. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And as always, thank you for listening to Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. Think about how this company has now taken these new novel approaches to solve a really important problem of myasthenia gravis and how these may be applied to other immune disorders, uh, so many of which are really just diseases that have to be maintained because of a lack of response to therapies. It's all very exciting and hopeful for the future of taking care of the folks who are ill now and maybe never having the future experience these diseases. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. -P.